How's it going, guys? This is Dan Fagella with Sentient Potential. I'm here with uh, Mr. Kevin Legranger, who's also an associate professor at the New York Institute of Technology and a fellow at the IEET. And today we're going to cover a number of topics, including his new book on androids and slavery. Uh, how's it going there, Mr. Kevin? Great. Good okay. to be here. Fantastic. Cool. Um, and I know uh, normally the first topic I delve right into um, with regards to interviews is sort of how people came to cover, explore the ideas of ethics and emerging technology. Obviously, um, your job with NYIT is, uh, kind of relates to writing, and I know you head up technical writing over there. How did that, or, or did that at all, kind of lead you down the path you are now, really exploring the ethical considerations uh, of future technology? Yeah, what happened is, like a lot of things, it was uh, an evolutionary process. Um, I, um, in graduate school, before graduate school, I was a science major. And so I kind of came full circle. I went from being a science major to an English major, then added economics, got a couple degrees there. So I've always had a kind of quantitative and scientific interest. But um, I went and got my graduate degrees. And then um, right after I got out of graduate school, what happened was I got involved with, uh, I was an early adopter of uh, Internet technology. So right in the early 90s, before the web, I was using what was uh, considered the Internet. And I started exploring as soon as the web came up, ways to use it, in, uh, especially in education. And so that, that was the kickoff point. And I've always, I've always been interested, in, as a result, in the academic side and the utility of, uh, of digital technology. So, um, so I started exploring, uh, exploring that, and that's what got me into technology and teaching. But also, uh, I started noticing, just because of my preoccupations, I started noticing things um, that were technologically oriented in, in what I read for studying literature. And so that's what, that's what gave me the idea for my book, um, Androids and Intelligent Networks in Early Modern Literature and Culture, um, is that I started noticing that, that uh, mentions of automata and robotic type of entities were mentioned all the way back to Aristotle. In fact, before then, to the Iliad, in Homer's Iliad, uh, in Book 18 of the Iliad, um, there's a visit to Hephaestus, the smithy god, and the first thing you see when, when you, uh, as a reader, is that Hephaestus has these golden serving maidens that he's made, and they're like, just like our modern robots, humanoid robots, they're smart, the book says they're smart, they're able to speak, they're able to do all kinds of things humans can do, and they're meant as serving girls um, for him. And, uh, he also has a sort of R2-D2 type of robot that's not humanoid, kind of a, uh, a little serving platter that self-moves so it can go in and out of the banquet hall of the gods and serve them wow. without you know, anybody directing it. So the ancient Greeks thought about this stuff a lot, actually. Um, Aristotle refers back to the Iliad and his politics when he's talking about slavery. And the thing is, is automated humanoids or humanoid-like robots... Uh, in their mind, comes up in connection with slavery every single time. So that's that's always the connection. Wow. Huh. So uh, yeah, so that's how it started, and that's how I got interested in. Because my book deals with slavery, that leads me to ethics. Yeah, pretty pretty clearly and right away, I imagine. So um, and and with uh, I know I want to kind of explore your most recent book um, as we continue forward. One topic I figured would be interesting is that you, you kind of bridge that gap from um, writing not necessarily just 
technical pieces on ethical concerns, but actual books and, and obviously your background is in writing. How do you see sort of an emphasis on the humanities or at least a rich experience in the humanities as maybe bolstering your own efforts on the ethical side of things or seeing future possibilities? Well, when you, uh, when you study humanities, a big portion of it, especially the further you go in your studies, is uh, studying philosophy. And, um, you know, really, so that's a big part of it, and that's where, that's why it's, I see that it's so intricately connected. But also, um, also, if you study literature especially, the further back you go beyond the 19th century, basically everything is connected with the Bible. Um, the Judaic Bible and, and the Christian Bible. So it's all about ethics. In fact, um, before 1800, literature wasn't considered worth reading unless it was about how to live your life more morally. Wow. I, uh, I must say I was unaware of that myself, so i got to get to reading more old stuff. But, um, okay, cool. So that, that kind of gives you, I, I suppose maybe different slices or frames of ethical perspectives that you can kind of see through and apply to the now. And that, that's something actually I've done a lot of uh, thinking on and writing on myself is that a lot of the time the tech concerns of today are sort of handled from a tech concerns of today perspective, which I think is useful because we have the, the context of, you know, a world with the Internet, a world with phones that can do a million things. We, we, we can sort of, um, we get our our present time better than people in the 50s or people 2,000 years ago did. But at the same time, um, the ethical frames and lenses to be used to how we can carry that forward and how we can handle ethical concerns, I think it's useful to have more than just what sort of seems right, seems normal today. Um, do you see kind of your work drawing on those other lenses and applying kind of different perspectives from past works you've been able to read? Yeah, I think that a key thing for, well, and this is a big part of what I believe about uh, how we as intellectuals should contribute to the world today, that that we need to go beyond our, our own little narrow disciplines and uh, delve into, apply what we know to, to uh, things that we're interested in and things that we think that can help the rest of the world. So so I'm, I'm a humanist. But humanities encompasses so many things. Um, it includes it encompasses philosophy, literature, rhetoric. You know, the art of public speaking and persuasion. It encompasses the sciences in general and art. Um, and so, to be a, hu a good humanist, you have to know a little bit about every one of those things. So, how does the how does the question the question you ask how does the old stuff contribute to um, how I see the the way the new world works? Well. The interesting thing, and this is a big part of my book, it's one of the main points, is that what we think of as new approaches and new attitudes toward, say, technology, are not really new. They, I found in my research, they extend, like I said, all the way back to Aristotle's time, more than 2,000 years. And that is, for instance, back then, they thought of technology as a way for humans to expand their horizons and make themselves more powerful, to be able to supersede what the gods, or what nature could allow them to do, to be more godlike. And, uh, you know, we have those same preoccupations today. You see it especially in sci-fi. Um, you know, Star Trek is all about going where no human has gone before. It's, so, it's even a little bit godlike to, to be talking to you through a computer screen right now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Comparatively little, speaking, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, this... As I say in my book, this whole preoccupation with making ourselves stronger through technology is an archetype. 
it's really something built into the human nature to want to do that kind of thing, to want to marshal technology in order to overcome the limits the gods have set on us. And Prometheus is the biggest example of that in ancient uh, ancient mythology. You know, he he um, stole fire from the gods, which was the most basic technology in the ancient world. I mean, without fire, you can't make metal, uh, you can't make swords, you can't make plows, uh, that kind of thing. So humans were, in the as the myth goes, humans were totally helpless because Prometheus is stupid younger brother Epimetheus had screwed up and not given humans any kind of natural weapons. No, no claws, no teeth, no armor, nothing. So, uh, so Prometheus had to steal fire from the gods in order to give humans some way to survive. So he gave us the most basic technology. And it's the way that we could become better, but also we defied, he defied the gods, and humans by extension also defied the gods because they steal what the gods own in order to make themselves better. Huh. That that's that's fascinating to me in many respects because, um, and and I think there's the common there's a common theme too, like what happened to Prometheus, right? I mean, right. stuff went down because he did that. It wasn't necessarily a good time, um, and that's that's the whole idea with Atlantis, right? Which is a, an older story in of itself. Was there a downside out of my own raw curiosity here? Was there a downside in the Iliad to the the man with his automata? Was there some eternal punishment that was placed upon him in any way, shape, or form, or did his autonoma turn him turn against him? Because I find there's usually that negative bent of us going past the gods, and, and particularly in literature. Um, what happened there? Yeah, you know it's interesting that you ask that because um, the only people in throughout. Uh, history and literature who get punished for doing that kind of thing are humans. Um, yeah. Because Hephaestus is a god, so he doesn't get punished. He has a perfect right in the Greek mind to be able to make things like uh, talking and moving metallic women and serving tools because he is a god. You know, So it's in, well within his rights. Prometheus wasn't a god. He was a titan. He was one of the ancestors of the gods. And because he wasn't a god, and he set foot on the gods, Mount Olympus, and took what they, what belonged to them. He got punished. You probably know how the how the myth ends. Prometheus gets captured by Zeus and strapped to a, he's chained to a rock, and every day an eagle comes and eats his liver out, but he doesn't die. Instead, it regenerates, and he just goes through this torture over and over. In some versions, he gets saved um, by uh, by one of the other gods who has a who who tricks Zeus into letting Prometheus go free. But yeah, there's always a condign punishment for any non-god, anybody who's mortal who tries to step into the territory of the gods. So humans always, in stories about humans creating big super technology, there's always some huge danger. In fact, that's another main point of my book, that that the, there's, there's two sides to the coin. As we extend our powers uh, through technology, we also reduce ourselves because to create any really powerful intelligent technology and allow it to operate fully, you're giving away choices. You're giving away um, your ability to make decisions to that intelligent technology, right? And so when you do that, you're reducing yourself because you're giving away part of your agency. You know, your ability to affect the world, you're handing it over to a robot. And when you do that, you're reducing your own power and your own ability to do things. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So, so you see that as sort of 
Um, and I, I suppose there's some examples where it's stronger, right? Like if we have uh, a robot made that gets everything done in the house and we don't even think about it, that maybe is on a different scope and scale of what you're referring to than if we can, you know, if we have like a checklist on the side of our visual screen and we can just like, you know, manually check off those things and, and you know, kick off things things happening on our own account so that, that there's still some um, uh, some volition there. I, I suppose there's some technologies uh, that are more giving of volition than others, um, but, I, but I can see how that would be a continuum. The word you use, volition, is a key is a keyword, and the other keyword is uh, decision. When you hand over, and I'm not the first person to say this, actually, uh, the father of robotics, Norbert Wiener, way back when he uh, came up with the idea of robotics in the, in the late 1940s, in his book, made a huge warning about this. He said, when we give away our decision-making capabilities to robots or intelligent technology, we're giving away, essentially, our souls. And... Uh, that's the big danger still today. A lot of a lot of people who think about technology, especially me, um, I worry about um, not about ro my robo vacuum down in the basement. I have a little you know Roomba. Yeah, yeah. That thing just does what I tell it. But if if I had a really intelligent robot, like say, uh, let's say I had a robot butler, and I could give I could uh, delegate authority to do certain things to that robot butler. Let's say, uh, like, I, I, how much would I actually give away if I found out my butler was really smart, if it could evolve and become smarter and take over, let's say, I, I could tell him a list of groceries, keep track of what's in my fridge and go buy new groceries whenever it gets empty. We can already do that, actually. Bill Gates has invented us, and, and, and all people like him have invented a smart refrigerator. But what if, what if it became possible to say, okay, well, can you do my banking for me? I don't want to hear anything about it. Just do it take care of my finances, and, and then you evolve to saying, you know, by the way, um, take care, can you take care of, you know, getting flowers for my wife, and then it evolves to, where does it stop? Yeah, right? well, yeesh, that's also, a slippery slope, when right? Give, when you give away decision-making abilities like that, then the robot will make decisions based on its programming, and you won't, you can't be sure that its programming program will be in sync with what you anticipate. And that's the big thing Norbert Wiener warns about, warns about, and also a big thing that um, uh, Bill Joy, the, the guy who started Sun Microsystems, warned about in his famous essay yeah. called "Why the Future Doesn't Need Us." Yep. You know, he said he said we always tend to overestimate our programming capabilities, uh, and uh, you know, we program a really intelligent robot, and it evolves. Then where are we going to be? Yeah, and, and, and with a Terminator scenario, perhaps in the in the worst possible case. Yeah, potentially. Um, so, like giving away of of uh, volition and decision. Of decision making. Yeah. Of decision making power. And maybe this leads us to an extent right into um, your book with this concept of android slaves. Just just for the the people who've yet to read it yet, I know we're we're going to link to this in the article and underneath the video. Um, give us, I guess, sort of a gist of um, your propositions or your warnings or kind of what you put forth. Um, uh, as, as kind of the, the real mission of that book? Well, the main point of the book is to survey um, these sort of strange occurrences. I mean, strange because it's well before not only the industrial age, but the age of even of science, that um, great minds are thinking uh, about the possibility of making artificial servants. And then what did that mean to them? 
and what kinds of things showed up in the literature about this. And what I found was two things. First, that it was occurring, and that that the first thing um, these thinkers envisioned, and also literary uh, literary works envisioned, was a super humanoid. Uh, artificial servant that would take care of things you didn't like to take care of. And that's exactly what we think about today. We, now, this is weird. This is 500, 1,000 years ago. They're thinking of the same three reasons we still think about for robotics, for something that will do other, other, another thing that will do things that are dirty, dangerous, or dull for you. And um, the second thing I found out was that they worry about the same dangers that we tend to worry about right now, which is if you invent something that powerful, that's in effect really superhuman, then how do you guard against it turning the tables on you and making you the slave instead of the master? Uh, I'm just taking notes on this. Um, so the book is really about those two things, that uh, this preoccupation we have that seems to go through the literature um, of the, you know, pre of ancient times, of dreaming of superpower, but also worrying about what that power might do to us, um, how it might turn on us, mm. and how we might lose our own ability to do things, our own abilities and our freedoms, if we allow stuff to be done for us. And, and that's a, a maybe more than ever applicable notion. Um, back then, I mean, in Aristotle's time, it would have been so so tremendously far away from any even remotely similar capacity outside of actual slaves, um, which was right. the case back then. I imagine slaves were probably the one doing the, the, the dirty, dangerous, and dull. I'm going to use those terms. I love yeah. those terms, by the way. That's fantastic. It's really easy to remember that way. Um, the three Ds. Yeah. The three Ds. The three Ds of stuff you'd rather have robots do. Um, right. So, uh, and, and what are sort of... Um, or how, how do you kind of take those frames of the past or those occurrences of the past and and apply that to maybe how we should be thinking about um, our issues moving forward in the future or, or really what our present concerns are with robotics, artificial intelligence, and things like that? Right. Well, the last chapter of my book I call Points of Contact, and I point out what I've sort of been talking with you about, how the preoccupations of the ancients, uh, people in the Renaissance, the Middle Ages, and, and the ancient times, haven't really uh, changed, that we're still preoccupied with the same issues. The only difference is we can actually create what they only dreamed about. So we're stuck in this ethical quandary now where we have, I mean, think about what we already have. We don't have superhuman robots. We don't have robots that can think for themselves, but we do have predator drones, which are right now the Department of Defense is already put out a call for scientists to try to make drones that can operate independently of a human operator. They want uh, auto autonomous weapons, and um, there are a number of books about about that. Um, the most famous one is uh, um, Wired for War by um, uh, P.W. Singer. Um, anyway, that came out a couple years ago. But the fact that we can already do these things, uh, we can kill people with predator drones, and the DOD is looking to op let them operate on their own, and they also want to have autonomous robotic soldiers in the field, they're looking to do that. They've already got a guy um, at Georgia Tech looking how to build ethics, sort of an ethical governor into robots, uh, into weapons that roll around on the field by themselves so that they can target uh, target properly. 
in other words, target a soldier rather than a civilian. We've also got robots. The other big push in robotics right now is to, is to make robots that can be caretakers for elderly people. Because in Japan, they don't have any kids. They don't have any children, really. So they need, they're trying to replace huh. children with robots and nurses with robots because they won't have many nurses in the future because they don't have any kids, right? So, so they're, they're just not reproducing in Japan right now? Right, the very low birth rate. They're not replacing, um, it's not replacing the people who die. So huh, that's interesting. Their population's shrinking. Wow, I had no idea that that was the case. It's very curious. Yeah, and so they have all these, if you look around on the internet, they have all these robots already um, that they've invented for doing things like lifting people into a bed, old people, oh. uh, bringing them medications and water, um, basic stuff. But, but they're trying to replace nurses with robots. And they've already replaced some medical um, functions on hospital floors with robots here. In the United States, there's a robot, it's been on 60 Minutes, that, that goes around and distributes meds and pills. It rolls around the hospital ward and, um, you know, shows up in, in, uh, in a room and will have the meds for the person. And either the person takes them himself or sometimes the doctor's there and then Basically, it's a delivery person. But okay, so you got all this stuff, and it's already worrying scientists so much. And I talk about this. I talked about this in just uh, a recent um, presentation at Arizona State. Wendell and I and uh, yeah, yeah. Jay were there. This is they're worried enough that in 2009, I don't know if you knew this, but there was this sort of secret meeting among computer scientists out at the Salem Institute. No reporters, no media were allowed into this meeting because what they discussed was whether or not they should put limits on the development of intelligent technology because they're worried about losing control of the technology, um, because they're worried about somewhere down the line, maybe not in the near future, but 20, 30 years from now, um, we'll have intelligent technology that, that, like us, will be able to evolve, learn its, it, and modify itself, and then... You know, what, what could happen? So anyway, the, the result was of that meeting was they said, well, we're not going to put limits on, we're not going to vote to do that because we think it, limits wouldn't work because rogue countries, rogue operators would just ignore the rules and go ahead and develop those things anyway. Yeah. So what they try to do now is stay out in front. The United States is trying to stay out in front of technological development. Here's one nightmare scenario for you, just one. We've already got predator drones. What happens when Hezbollah develops predator drones? Because all they got to do is capture one and reverse engineer it. The Iranians claim they've already done that, captured one of our drones and are busy reverse engineering it. Then they have a drone, and they can do the same thing to us that we do to them. What if they send one over the skies of, of uh, Long Island, where I live, and decide to pick off a few people? You know, then where are we going to be? So anyway, the... the so my point, to go back to the summary here, is that my book points out in the last chapter that these preoccupations that, that we have now are nothing really new. They extend all the way back to Aristotle, who worried about the fact that slaves would rebel and, in fact, thinks about automatic slaves. What he thinks about specifically are weaving looms that could work themselves and understand the master's orders, just like a slave, and may a harp that could play itself um, without any orders to the master and would know what the master would like. And he said you could get rid of slaves because they tend to be disruptive. They tend to rebel. 
Um, but he doesn't think about the possibility that intelligent tools might do the same thing. Mm. Along the lines, though, people started worrying about that. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it starts. Now, we're, we're still worrying about that. The difference is we can actually make this stuff. Yeah. Ray Kurzweil is very optimistic, Hans Moravik, Ray Kurzweil, very optimistic about this eventuality that we can make highly intelligent robots. There are some people, though, who are very pessimistic, like Singer, like, um, well, Jay Hughes is sort of in the middle. I'm in the middle. I worry that there's too much happy talk about this stuff, um, that people like Kurzweil, whom I've, I've seen talk a few times, only looks at the, the good possibilities. And whenever somebody asks him a question like, well, why wouldn't they rebel against us? He doesn't really have a good answer. He gives a little quick. Um, I asked him once at a, at a meeting he was speaking at, okay, if we have... If we have all these intelligent robots in 20 years, and we can upload our brains into them, let's say, and make ourselves virtually immortal, what about one little thing? What's going to power? Where's the power going to come from to power all of these metallic bodies? Um, you know, the batteries we have now aren't worth doodly squat. You know, look at the electric cars. They go, what, 30 miles on a charge. <laughs> yeah. Even, even this MacBook, uh, even this MacBook, you know, like an hour and a half if I have Skype running, you know, it just psh, right. tanks. So what so What his answer was, uh, was this a short one-sentence quip? Well, you know, the geometric progression of, of computer chips will proceed the same, the batteries proceed the same way. And in 20 years, we'll have incredibly efficient batteries because technology increases geometrically. That's his thesis, and that it'll all take care of itself, that um, as James Hughes likes to put it, you don't have to worry in the future because we'll all have these little nanobot boxes that we can just get stuff from. Anytime we need something, the box will give it to us, you know, like the replicator on Star Trek. Yeah. Um, that's what the optimists sort of say. These magic magic nanoboxes, that, that's what's going to help. You know, <laughs> yeah, the magic hat, so to speak. And I'm sure Kurzweil ha has, or I, maybe I don't, I don't know, I don't know the guy personally, nor if I, can I say I've read enough of his stuff, although I've, I've downed a few of his books. Um, and some of his talks, maybe he does have to some, you know, I can't imagine he doesn't have a somewhat rounded conception um, of, of what some of the, the concerns might be, but it does seem as though he is on that plus side. You know, really, that the more we develop, generally speaking, the better things are going to get. Um, right. and, and obviously, um, your, your stance is that, is that you're more middle of the road and kind of want to keep us uh, awake and aware to those possibilities. Of I'm a little more worried about it than he is. Okay, and more I'm, worried. <laughs> so this is why I'm working on ethics. My specific focus right now is on the attempt to create emotional, uh, an emotional connection between humans and robots. There are scientists right now working on trying to create robots that will feel emotion. And the reason for that is so that mainly that they'll be friendly to us and not destroy us. And uh, this and then the other thing they're trying to do is create robots that humans will feel emotions about. And they've already been pretty Yeah, successful. yeah. I've seen, I've seen some work there. Bees, you know. Yep, MIT. Yeah, if you give, them, you give them certain traits and qualities and all of a sudden we kind of have relatively predictable reactions. I saw an, yeah. in, an, interesting, uh, an interesting, very short documentary piece uh, that uh, uh, Wendell Wallach was actually part of um, where they talked about how you have robots of... Uh, of you know, certain human, like if they're, if, you know, if they're shaped kind of like a human in certain ways, we respond well to them. But when it starts to cross like an even more realistic threshold, we start yeah. to 
get more afraid. You know, when it when it, when they start to really look like people, then there's yeah. that cutoff. So it's very interesting that we have to work with these. Um, you know, we have to work with our own little biological triggers, like what kicks off fear for us little hairless apes. You know, like we have to yeah. we have to work around that, which I I found very uh, I don't know, kind of entertaining to to listen to. You know, yeah. even feeling my own responses. You know, you see see a robot that's too real, and there yeah. really is that response of sort of, you know. Well, it's just it's uncanny valley. When it gets too real, you start getting freaked out by it. <laughs> yeah. Until it gets very real. For instance, if, if you were a robot, and I was talking to you right now, and I knew you were a robot, and I'm looking at you, I wouldn't be freaked out because you look and act exactly human. Yep. So I, I would probably feel okay about that. But if you if you make you look a little more robotic, if you look more like, say, Data on Star Trek, yeah. that's getting into the uncanny and scary area because uh. you look human but not quite. The A good example of that is horror films like Chucky. Yeah. Chucky looks human, but there are weird things about him. He's too short. He moves mm. funny. He has uh, oh. jerky movements. Uncanny so, Valley. It's called the Uncanny Valley thesis. It's a, it's a pretty famous. You can find it online called Uncanny Valley, and it's a, a theory put forward in a short paper by a Japanese computer scientist about 20 years ago, and that's what Wendell Wallach's talking about. And we all talk about that. The whole. Uh, especially, I'm not a computer science scientist, but the the computer scientists at MIT, uh, especially I think it's Donna Brazil who runs the MIT Media Lab. Her project is to try to make robots humans would empathize with. Yeah. And she's very concerned with that uncanny valley, and so are the Japanese because they want they want to be able to give somebody a robot like an old person, and have that old person like that robot. And not go, I don't want this robot. I want a real person taking care of me. Yeah. So they have to make a robot that's fuzzy. and, and uh, that Fuzzy. <laughs> you got to make them fuzzy. You give it some fur. Fuzz, you know? yep, give it some fur and some uh, and some some eyebrow expressions. And uh, all of a sudden we, we like the robot. It's supposed to hate right. the robot. Interesting. Um, and as a final topic, and interestingly enough, you had sort of um, touched on this. I think you had framed it as something along the lines of, um, how how intellectuals contribute to the world today. This is something I really like to speak to um, because I have kind of my particular leanings here, but I, I believe that this should be a very much open-minded topic and, and a topic that I'm always curious to to formulate better is is how do we as as thinkers, people contemplating these issues, whether we're technology folks, ethics folks, writers, um, how how can we kind of aid in because no no one person is going to say like, Wait a second, guys. All these biotech and AI issues, let's just apply this theory. I mean, this is the best one. And everybody will be like, oh, yeah, he's right. And then we just do it, and then everything's all right. How, how do we give ourselves the best shot of making this kind of transhuman transition as good as it can be? What can we do as, as intellectuals in that, in that light? Well, I think the big thing is to keep questioning and also to bring our questions to the public forums. This is what we're doing right now, you and, you and I are talking on a forum that's very informal and that the public might actually look at. Yeah. Right? Yep. If I were doing, if I were saying what I'm saying, in fact, I do say this stuff in my book and in articles I've written for um, academic magazines or journals, only certain small groups of people read that stuff. And I think it's very important that we, I mean, we're highly educated people. We need to, whatever we've, we learn. We need to find a way to bring the public in to participate 
in whatever we're learning and make it compatible with what palatable for them and interesting so that they'll think about these things too. We don't want to end up one day with just a bunch of a small group of, of academics and intellectuals waving flags and saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, be careful here, because that's not going to work. We need to have people in the general public being aware of what's going on and caring about what's going on. And i got to say, one last thing is that the traditional, the public intellectual, was a very strong tradition throughout history, all the way up until about 1950. And then in 1950, in the United States especially, we started dividing up uh, the academy. We, we divided academy, uh, different disciplines from each other. We put ourselves in ivory towers. We don't talk to each other in the academy. And, then, and we stopped talking to the public. The public in general doesn't know what scientists do very well, except people like Carl Sagan, you know, they popularize it with, with easy-to-read books. And they, But even worse, they don't know what humanists do, because humanists don't even make an attempt anymore to, to say, here's what I do and here's why it's important. They used to do that before the 50s. And mm. In fact, if you look back, a good example is the famous poet um, T.S. Eliot. He wrote stuff not only for poetry for intellectuals and essays for intellectuals. He also wrote essays for the general public um, about poetry that were meant to be written, uh, published in magazines that everybody could read. Humanists don't do that stuff anymore mm. because they, um, it just, we got too specialized and uh, too focused and interested in our own academic pursuits. So anyway, I think it's, it's time that we bring what we do back into the public realm and, and and invite other people to participate. And do you see sort of that um, that that collaboration with the public as something that um, I, you know it's good from kind of an equality standpoint? I, I suppose depending on your your uh, ethical leanings, um, but also as as fruitful in terms of idea generation or fruitful in terms of a better communal handling of these issues. Um, what, what do you see as sort of the, the fruitfulness of, of that sharing? Because I believe in it as well, but I'm curious to your perspective. Well, I think like you just said, the communal nature of uh, to bring to bring knowledge into the community it makes decision, communal decision-making better. And I think that's the important thing. I mean, uh, if we share what we know, then we are better informed decision-makers. And I think that's... Uh, only help things. I would agree. Um, and on that note, and in that light, hopefully we can share this video and some articles around a little bit, and as well as uh, your your new book. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I certainly I certainly appreciate you being able to take the half hour and hang out and hash out some of these uh, topics. Are there any other events, projects, um, works that you're you're kind of working on now that people might be interested in? Yeah, I would recommend people take a look at the IWT's website. Um, there are uh, short little um, articles posted there that are meant for the general public, the general educated public. I wrote, um, I also have, a, there's one there that's connected from UPI, United Press International. I wrote for them on the Mars landing, the recent Mars landing, and what it means for artificial intelligence. That's just an example. Um, I'll... We're, we're all doing a lot of public speaking recently. I'm going to be talking in Spain, um, and I'm in fact involved with a, a huge working group in, in Spain starting now over the next five years. And what's interesting about this is it's a group that's exploring how all of our focus on digital stuff might actually have uh, messed up 
our ability to communicate and understand each other's body language. Hmm. It's called the MetaBody Project, and we're going to be focusing on how um, human body language and the human body itself is still a necessary thing <laughs> um, to for, for for human beings because people like Morvik and, and uh, uh, Kurzweil, for instance, they seem to think we could just take a brain and stick it into a machine and it'll still be the same thing, you know. Um, but there are a number of us who think that embodiment, that that who we are isn't just this, it's all of this, yeah. that the body and the mind communicate. So anyway, that's, that's an interesting sort of project that's uh, on the forefront of things, and uh, Stefan Sorger is involved in that as well, right. and a pretty famous um, woman named Catherine Hales, who uh, sort of made popularized the whole issue of post the post human. Um, she's from Duke, and she's interested. She's involved in this project. Awesome, fantastic! So people can dig into that as well, and I'll make sure I include the links and whatnot into the article. And uh, I will certainly be looking forward to digging into any of your new articles up on the IET site as well. So thank you very much. Sure. Cool. Thanks. Appreciate Good it. to talk with you. Yep. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker. Uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. And make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.